like us to turn at this time to the New Testament in 1 Timothy chapter 3. There is here in 1 Timothy 3, arguably the most extensive passage of the qualifications of both elders and deacons, fitting that at the installation of a deacon and an elder, we read from this and remind ourselves of the qualifications and the purpose of this qualifications of an elder and deacon. Let's read the first 13 verses of 1 Timothy 3. Hear now the word of God. This is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop, that's an overseer, an episcopos, from which we get the word episcopalian, but it simply means an overseer, it's an elder. If, he desires, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. We'll read through verse 13. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. That's as far as we'll read the Word of God at this point of the qualifications of elders and deacons written by uh, the Apostle Paul to Timothy that Timothy might know how to conduct himself properly in the house of God and that the house of God may be blessed. <clears throat> at this occasion of the installation of a deacon and an elder into the church of God at Sovereign Grace United Reformed Church, we are reminded in this installation that this is one of the most significant actions and blessings of Jesus Christ in and through his church. Besides the installation of a minister, this also the installation of deacons and elders is one of the most significant actions and awesome blessings of Jesus Christ in and through his church. For these men of God also here installed today, represent Christ Jesus. They minister truth and righteousness and mercy on his behalf. They lead his flock. They love his flock, the bride of Christ, 
and they protect her for her blessing and the honor of our Lord Jesus Christ. We consider today a qualification, the qualification of all of us believers, but a qualification which must be preeminently in the officers, the special officers of the church. That qualification is integrity. Integrity is a lost word in our society, and sadly, most sadly, integrity is a lost word and reality in much of the church of Jesus Christ. It's a lost thing. It's a lost and forgotten virtue. But it may not be so here at Sovereign Grace. And by the grace of God, we can say integrity is not so lost here, but found. It's given. It's given in the congregation which has appointed these men, recognized their appointment from God, and it's given to these men as a blessed quality, this integrity for which we are thankful to God. To encourage integrity, and also in the flock, as well as in the office bearers, and men in the future who will serve to encourage that kind of integrity which we should have and which we should seek, and to warn against compromise of this vital virtue in the church, I would Call your attention at this time, beloved, to the integrity of an office bearer. The first thing we want to consider is what is integrity is, and then what it is for, and then finally, the result of integrity. What is integrity? Integrity. What is it that you men must have, Tony and Brandon? and Kevin, and Henry, and Pastor Dick. What is it that we must have as offers bearers? What should the congregation be seeking when it's seeking integrity in office bearers? The word and its definition are rare in society, but the word and synonyms, similar words, are common in the Bible, integrity and similar words. I'm just going to cite some of the lists uh, of, that the Bible has of the use of integrity. Proverbs 10, verse 9, the book of wisdom. He who walks with integrity walks securely, but he who perverts his ways will become known. There you have integrity contrasted with perversion of his ways. And then you have security as a blessing of walking in integrity. And you have a public shame for those who pervert their ways. They will become known. Hebrews 10 verse th- or 11 verse 3, the integrity of the upright will guide him but the perversity of the unfaithful will destroy him. Same idea, you have integrity, and then you have the opposite, crookedness or perversity. Psalm 24 and verse 6, interesting uh, psalm, of course, describing the ascension of Christ, but also 
describes the ascension of believers into the holy hill of God. And these are men and women of integrity. Psalm 24, 3. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. There is described in so many words what the Bible is setting forth as integrity. This special quality described here as of one who has clean hands and a pure heart, of one who avoids idolatry and has not sworn deceitfully, and so on. This is integrity. Psalm 26, really the whole psalm is taken up in this integrity, and the word is used here. Psalm 26, verse 1, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I've walked in my integrity. I've also trusted in the Lord. I shall not slip. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind, my heart. For your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I've walked in your truth, and so on. So there you have a man of integrity. There you have a psalmist. The New Testament also is, is a, the word of God here in this latter age, which defines integrity in so many words and speaks of it in other places as well. 2 Corinthians 8.21, the apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians uh, that the people to whom he writes, should avoid evil, avoid um, all bad things, and they should provide honorable things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men, 2 Corinthians 8.21. There's a, an allusion here to what's called integrity. It has to do with pleasing not only people, but pleasing God especially. There are many examples of integrity in the Bible. People who walk with what's called an upright heart and who weren't crooked. People who were men of God who sought to please God and not just men. Enoch, for example, we read of him, children, before the flood. He walked with God. And the Bible says he was not then found as if people were persecuting him for walking with God and he was translated into the presence of God, one of the two people who lived and never died in the Holy Writ. Abraham, as well, is set forth for us as an example of integrity. Though he had faults, yet he was ready to offer his son just because God said he must on Mount Moriah. And then also he rejoiced to see Christ's day, and to him his faith was accounted for righteousness. Abraham. Moses, a man of God, though he had faults as well, he nevertheless chose to suffer reproach, the reproach of Christ, rather than to sin for a season and to, and to frolic in the, the honors and the, the leeks and the garlics of Egypt. He would serve God even to his hurt. Job is an outstanding man of integrity. The devil was frustrated with Job because it seemed like he, there was nothing that could get at him, not even the devil. And so he would take away everything from Job, who was the right, most righteous man in all the earth, the Bible says. And he would then take away what he thought were hedges that were just little gimmicks that Job was using to 
show that or to, to kind of fake his godliness, but if you'd take them away, the devil was sure there would be no righteousness left, but that wasn't the case. God took just about everything away from Job, even his family and even his wife who said, curse God and die. And he said, no, no, I am the Lord's. He gives, he takes away. I am his forever, for he is God and I am his. David, for all his faults, a man of integrity, willing to admit his faults and and to be humble and to serve the Lord no matter what. Daniel is an outstanding prophet who would pray and pray privately. And when there was a call to idolatry and to worship the king, he said, no, I'm not going to do that. And he prayed even though he risked his life in the lion's den. In the New Testament, we have the Apostle Paul, of course, a man of integrity. To him, to live was Christ and to die is gain. To him and from his perspective, by the grace of God alone, he was what he was. He gave no credit to himself. So you have all of these people and all of these descriptions of what's called integrity, but we really haven't gotten at it yet, have we? It's kind of a loose definition that has been maybe floating around in in our minds. Say uprightness. That's how the Bible translates the Hebrew word for for integrity sometimes, righteousness. I walk uprightly. That's a word, but is integrity righteousness? Is there a difference? How do we uh, define these things more clearly? Maybe we can't. Well, now, with regard to office bearers, I want to say to you that integrity is indeed one of the things that's required of them, and not just um, that I'm making this up, but it's required of them in a special way. You have, for example, Titus and 2, verse 7, which is calling, uh, talking about the things of, uh, Titus 1, verse 7, talking about the things of God. Wrong chapter here. Titus 2, verse 7, sorry. Uh, Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned. There's the word integrity there in Titus chapter 2. Now, I want to say that basically, in, in one way, you can equate integrity and integrity of office with what's called blamelessness. If you remember, when we read 1 Timothy 3, the first qualification of a bishop was that he must be blameless, and then all of the other qualifications. But this also is required of deacons. They must be blameless. And verse 10 tells us this, deacons must first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Now that isn't sinlessness. You'll be glad to know that, men. So were your wives and your children who are wondering how could dad and how could my husband be an office bearer, blameless, a man of integrity, when we know his inconsistencies? We know his temper. We know how weak he is and, and not always leading us in the way that he should. This is what we say to the shame of every one of us, pastor included. We are not perfectly blameless nor perfectly uh, uh, people of integrity. But what is 
integrity. Now, beloved, I would say to you that integrity, though it's not so specifically defined in the Scripture itself, it's listed rather among many other virtues that are necessary also for office bearers. Integrity is that queen of virtues, that fount of virtues, that fount of what's called character, which is there in your heart when no one's looking. Leaders in theology classes and leaders in churches have basically come to that conclusion. That's what integrity is. It's who you are when nobody sees you except, of course, God. It's not even who you or what you do. It's who you are. It is this mother of all virtues, which is not meaning that you're perfect, but it's that inside of you which wants to be perfect as God is perfect, holy as God is holy. You strive to be a man of integrity. And that means you are a man of integrity. You are humble with regard to your sins. And so, yes, no one should be able to blame you. That's really what blamelessness is. Nobody can look at you and say, there's this fault and there's this, this evil that he persists in. But integrity says, if nobody else is blaming me, I'm going to blame myself because I know my heart. This man is that trusting in God and not trusting in himself, who is a man of integrity. It's who you are then when no one's looking and all the time, all the time which would be when people are looking and when people are not. But also it would be when you're rich and when you're poor. It would be when things are going well, but also in moments of crisis. You don't give up who you are. You don't deny who Christ is when the crisis comes. So whereas blamelessness says you're above reproach from without... Integrity says you're one who reproaches yourself, but then you find Jesus and are satisfied in him. There's something about wholeness here. Authenticity. Genuineness. That's what integrity is. And a genuine, authentic person, deacon or elder, is a man of integrity. I shouldn't have done this, but I told my wife in discovering anew this concept of integrity, I told my wife, well, integrity has to do with uh, an integer. My wife's a math major. And she said, well, I know that. It has to do with a whole number, not a fraction. Integrity has to do 
with describing us in our wholeness, in our innermost being and in our outward being, in all of our being, not just part of our life, but all of it. That's what integrity is. People speak of the integrity of something like steel. You know, there's steel and there's steel, S-T-E-E-L. There's steel that is really steel. It's something that could be relied upon to hold up the house or to hold up the building. But then there's steel that's not a steel that is steel of integrity. There's something, there's some fracture in it. Somehow it was put together, somehow it was brought together, melted together, and there's bubbles in it, or there's some kind of hole in the steel. And when there is pressure, when there is earthquakes, the steel that's not steel of integrity and wholeness, holy steel, will collapse. It will let you down, maybe from the 81st floor. So, ethically speaking, integrity is this kind of mother of all virtues that describes what all virtues must be if they're truly going to be virtues in yourself and if you're just going to be outward virtuous or not. Are you a man of integrity? This is versus duplicity. Duplicity is a word to describe someone who's of a double mind. Or of a mind to serve God now, but when the heat is on, not so. When he's pressured by popular opinion, not so. He's duplicitous. Two-faced. Also, integrity is the opposite of hypocrisy, which is something that Jesus combats at every turn in his ministry. The hypocrisy of the Pharisees, who prayed in public but not in private, who prayed to be seen but they didn't pray to God. They were not people of integrity. They were Christless. Integrity is something that is the opposite of corruption. Integrity is the essence of the truly virtuous, genuine life of Christ in a person. It's a gift of God's grace, is integrity. We're, we're trying to wrestle with what this is. It's a gift of God's grace. That really distinguishes it from what we call character. You have to have a good character, good qualities to be in the office. That's true. But integrity is more integral to these qualities this mother of character, as we said. People, after all, can be ungodly and be people of character. People can say, you know what? Respect for the office requires me to wear a suit when I go into the Oval Office of the White House. That's character. Character can be developed. Character can be imitated by children who imitate their upstanding citizen parents. And they learn their manners. And they learn how to behave before princes. And they learn that they are to respect their employer and to do an honest day's work. That can be developed. That can be modeled after. But integrity is a gift. 
Integrity is something that is worked in the heart by the Holy Spirit. It's the parent of all true virtue and character and is absolutely vital in a man that he be a man of integrity as an elder and as a deacon, as a pastor. Well, that's what integrity is. You have great examples of people who were men of integrity. Are we? And I don't want to say this is just a sermon or preach like this is a sermon just for a couple of men, a couple of ones who may have qualities for office and be recognized one day as a special officer in the church. Oh, no. Because integrity is this gift that we all have in one degree or another and should have if we be Christ's because it's this reality of God with us. Not just when we go to church, when we dress up, when we're bowing our heads and praying with the pastor, but in private. All circumstances as believers in God. We, men, women, and children, covenant people, God's people, who ascend to the holy hill of God because God gives us the grace to come in the name of Jesus. So this sermon is for every one of us, though it especially be for the officers who are to lead the way, to model integrity, to be outstanding, blameless inside and out, men of God, and even blameless, maybe especially blameless, when they're dealing with their sin. And they're saying, I'm just a wretch and I need to pray more. And my resolutions for the new year are to be more faithful. And with the short time I have on this earth, I'm going to spend it wisely. That's a man of God who leads, recognizing that responsibilities that he be a man of integrity all over the place have to do with caring for the flock of Jesus. And that leads us to why. Why, men, do we focus on what seems to be an impossible thing, not just blamelessness before others, but holy in God entirely and always as people of integrity. The answer is we represent Jesus. Basic, clear. In the Church of Christ, officers represent Jesus. Special officers with the office of all believer, but special, appointed, out of them are called to represent Jesus officially. In his person, in his work. You think of that, in his person as those 
who are image bearers of Christ. And when you go house to house, and when you come with the word and the, the, the wherewithal that shows the mercies of Christ to those who are indigent and in need, you're representing Jesus. And then in his work, not just his person, but his work, what he does. So we represent him as those who are his officials. And so that when people say, why do you do this? People in the church maybe, why are you doing this? You say, because I represent Jesus. He's, he's, my, he's my leader. And I'm here at the office. I'm here in the study. And I'm here on the job. And I'm here at your house. And I'm here receiving your phone call. You're asking for help. In the name of Jesus, I can do no otherwise because I'm his official, I represent him, and I model him. I would imitate Jesus and how he came and wasn't to do his own will, but his father's, and who came with the word of God that he was and is and spoke, and he came and his hands betrayed, in the best sense of the word, that he was indeed a whole man of God, of course, a whole man of God and a whole God of man, Jesus. Perfectly God and perfectly man among us, serving the will of the Father. And now here you have these men. These men, amazing. Shouldn't be as amazing. Imagine what it was when Jesus came to the earth, just a man. They saw. And when he said to his parents, mother and his stepdad, I must be about my father's business, don't you know? They must have been shaken. What is this? He saw a man of integrity, our, our boy of 12 reminding us what we all ought to be about Father's business, but he, of whom it was said he's Messiah and Emmanuel. Now we're starting to get it. He's truly who he says he is. He's truly going to do what he says he's going to do and what God and angels said he's going to do. He's going to save a people. This is what officers are, the genuine thing, the real article. And they lead the flock of Christ here. The first calling, the flock of Christ, that would be in your own families, little flocks of Christ. That would be in the church family. We are those as well, and the Bible makes a point of this, who not only care for the household of faith, but also for all people who are led our way. Time and time again, especially the deacons, but also the pastor, are met by people and talked to by people who call maybe in desperation or inquisitiveness, and they want to know about this. And we don't say, no, you're not the flock. 
we say, well, let's talk. And why don't you come to church and we'll talk about things and we'll talk about the holiness of God and the happiness that is true blessedness that's not just having things but having your soul, your soul's needs met. This is our calling here. This is all grace and this is privilege and this is the basic why of all of the responsibilities of God. We are responsible to be integrity people. You are Elder DeYoung and you are Deacon Van Dyke and also Elder Geisen, Deacon Baus, and Pastor Dick. We are all responsible. Grace makes us responsible. The sovereign appointment of God makes us now qualified not only but responsible to be Christ's. If not in the church, if there's not this integrity, this genuineness in the church, where will it be in this world? This isn't parliament. This isn't the office of the White House or any other place. Those places must be places of men of integrity. But these places in the seats of the congregation, in the pulpit, ministering sacraments, receiving the mercies of God, preaching the word, these are the special places in all the earth where God would show what his incarnation and the death of his son was all about, to make people like him, as him, serving him, holy and happy in the service. That means that we will bend every effort to this. And men, I want to call you at this time as we also will be called tomorrow night in our first council meeting together of 2024. I call you to bend every effort to be real with yourself, with your God, and in your work and relationships. That means pray. We said you could kind of work on character and you could discipline yourself and follow good examples of character and probably take a, some kind of self-help thing for developing character. Well, you can't do that with integrity. Pray to be men of integrity. Pray. Pray. And in 2024, as never before, be in the word of God and may the word of God be in you, men. Be as Christ. And that is to be in his word. So that when you come to the people, you're coming with his word and not yours, with truth and not your opinions, with righteousness and not with bias. Be zealous. Remember Thinahaz, zealous with a spear. Be one who before you help others in their salvation, who is working out his own salvation with fear and trembling. That's a man of integrity. Be accountable to God and have people you're accountable to. That's a real thing. For a single man, have people to whom he's accountable, 
his spare time, his work, church work. Also for spouses. Many a minister and many a, an elder and deacon, I dare say, I'm not so familiar with that, has made shipwreck of his ministry because his wife didn't confront him. How important to have a wife who confronts their husband. Not rebelliously, of course not, but humbly and not eagerly to catch him in a fault. But so that if he's not being so righteous, at least there's someone righteous in the home. We need that, men. That's why we married her and not somebody else who wouldn't give us a hard time. Godly wives, mothers in Israel, used of God to be mothers of integrity, even of office bearers. There's so many ways that the devil, as we'll see presently in the third point, is eager to make men mincemeat of men by attacking their integrity. One of them is by working in the congregation so they are not so interested in the integrity of the men. They just let them go. But a congregation is responsible because Christ is represented to be praying for the men. People of God, we plead with you right now in this service, please pray for us. And not last and not once in a while, but regularly. The Apostle Paul himself said, pray for me that I may be bold. Pray for the men of God whom God has appointed. Pray with gratitude. Encourage them in their work. And that will come when you pray for them because you'll be involved in them. There's something that's very blessed in our church. I want to remind you of that. The way that this all came about, that certain men were nominated and then affirmed into office. You know, that's not often done in churches nowadays, even Reformed and Presbyterian ones. It's not often done that the elders take the lead and nominate people and so on. We hear from you, whom you would see as a good candidate, but oftentimes it's kind of a free-for-all, more of a democracy than a monarchy, which it is, because Jesus is not the president, but the king of the church, ruling through the elders. And so what is unique almost in, in Reformed churches nowadays is that we are concerned to give leadership in nominating, and we're not concerned to hear that we need some guy because he needs a chance to be in the office, or some guy because he pays the budget, some guy because he's wealthy, some guy because he, he supports the Christian schools and so on. People of God, you know, when we do that, and when even in the process of choosing out elders and deacons and pastors even to be, to be uh, leaders among us, 
We have lost integrity. Because these men who are appointed now and who sit before you and stand before you on behalf of Jesus Christ are men of God, not of the people, by the people, and for the people, but of God and by God and for God. The demise of many of a church starts in the very selection of men, maybe because, well, everybody else is too busy, so we'll just go down the list and we'll pick him and her. The demise of many of a church is when people are not happy that they didn't get elected or nominated and so on. And they bear a grudge, don't do that. This isn't about that. Servants of Christ, you are lovely, every one of you. And you are virtuous and people of integrity and people of the cross. And I'd die for you. And we would die for you. Christ did die for you. You're precious in his sight. What other accolade do you need? There are elders and there are deacons and not everyone is an elder or a deacon or a pastor. So be it, body of Christ. Now the results, and they're amazing. I have seven. First, Christ is represented. Integrity, the result of it, Christ is, uh, is represented. His person is his work and from house to house and with mercies and righteous words and deeds as his word is brought. Second, something that is developed when there are people of integrity and it is known that there are people of integrity in the office. It's called trust. Trust. When you're married, for example, and some have been recently and some have been, or some will be soon, you trust that God is leading you. And you trust one another. That men and women, the trust has to continually be earned. Lived out of, we're not suspicious of one another, but we live in a, a very bad and sad world. We can abuse our authority. There's all this talk in the churches even about those who've sexually abused people in the congregation. God forbid! Well, they tyrannize the flock. They abuse their wives and all of this stuff. And the trust is snapped right then and there. You got to work on being people of integrity when nobody's looking. Third, the great result of integrity is unity of the body. That's beautiful. Honor those in authority over you, 1 Thessalonians 5, and there will be peace. Unity. Because we're all about being people of Christ and not about our own things. Then for this great blessing of the flourishing of the body. This is beautiful. 
The body of sovereign grace, the Church of Jesus Christ here represented is encouraged when there are special examples of office bearers who represent Jesus Christ in the midst. Our own integrity is enhanced when we see men who are examples to us, who are righteous and don't bend, whose marriages are exemplary. Our personal prayer lives will be enhanced. We are, in fact, those who are given the great blessing, as often in the Bible it is mentioned, Psalm 24, for example, the great blessing of being able to draw near to God. When there's integrity in the congregation, God will receive us. Who may ascend into the holy hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who's not lifted up his soul to an idol. He can worship. And this is what we're all about. If there's integrity in the very beginnings of it, and leadership in this integrity and this wholeness, then there is God with us and we with him, and we drawing near to God, and God drawing near to us in this wonderful communion of covenant of grace in this fellowship of life eternal. These things happen when there's integrity in the heart. Besides, this is in the generations. Proverbs 20 in verse 7, we read of this. Beautiful, beautiful way of describing this. The righteous man walks in his integrity, Proverbs 27, verse 7, and his children are blessed after him. You know how the covenant is cut off in the generations? It's because of faithfulness, faithlessness of parents often. And the children see them as fakes and they say, we want nothing of it. They don't see a parent who repents of sin. We're not talking about a parent who's perfect, but they don't see a parent even who repents of sin and who wants to do better and who's on his knees more. They see fakes. They see steel that is not Steel of integrity, it's not going to hold up. They see a church that's just a building. And then they leave. Because young people and children can see right through the hypocrisy, the duplicity, the fakery. But when there is integrity, there's a promise that when the righteous man walks in his integrity, his children are blessed after him with integrity, with resolution to serve the Lord. Marriages are blessed. Each officer is encouraged. Do you know what we're going to have tomorrow night, men? I think we've all had this before. It's called a procedure called censura morum, which means the censure of our conduct according to our office. This is what office bearers do, and we do this regularly, usually before the Lord's Supper, which we will celebrate, God willing, next Sunday. Censure amorum, that's to encourage each other in the office, to hold each other accountable, to be those who talk freely about how we all could improve, and so we are encouraged in our integrity. And besides then, beloved, another way that we flourish is by being a witness. We want the congregation to grow 
course we do. God's time, God's way. God's way and God's time. But it will surely be this way. When people of integrity led by officers are like Bibles that are read by all the world. When we are like Bibles, which as some have said are often the only Bible people read, they read you. Are you real? Do you pay your taxes? Do you give your boss the time? Do you respect people when they're not there in your speech and so on? Sixth, what comes with integrity? Temptations. Sorry, fifth, temptations. Temptations. The devil will let you go if you're already broken and not a person of, an, of integrity. Oh, he'll have his way with you. But so much does he focus on those who are people of integrity that it's relentless. This is why Paul says, the good that I would I do not, the evil that I would not that I do. Wretched man that I am. People who are people of integrity are wretches indeed. They have peace, but there's this war within because they know the devil and they know their own sin, and they know their own personal temptations, and on they come. The temptation to compromise. The temptation not to be on guard. After all, it's vacation time. Here I am, doing my thing. The devil will weaken our resolve. He will work in you when there's people who disagree with you just to please the people as the devil has even worked here. Just please the people. Please the people. And besides, there's people who disagree with you. There's other people who say they know better. Sometimes the only thing you have left is your integrity. Hang on to it, men. Your conscience, your good conscience before God that you're doing right. That's a man of God. That's Jesus who was crucified for his integrity. The reality of God in him. On the cross, so in the church, men of the cross. This isn't playtime. This isn't showcasing superheroes. This is a display of the cross and what it means to us here. Persecution. People criticize the preaching. You want me to change? I change as I may and must more to be faithful. But I may never change if it's to compromise the gospel. People are disciplined by the church. Other people might meddle with the discipline of the office bearers of the church, thinking they know better. They're more merciful. They're more righteous. They know everything, or they know a lot more than we do. 
Men, hold on to your cross and be not ashamed of your cross and be not ashamed of the word of God. Nobody gets a pass from having to have that as our standard. Uphold it. You'll be persecuted, sovereign grace. Or poisoned. But will you be faithful? Finally, there's this and ending on this gospel note. The blessing of a good conscience and hope. Amazing. Psalm 26 in verses 1 and 2 speaks of a man of integrity. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I've walked in my integrity. I've also trusted in the Lord. I shall not slip. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart, for your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I've walked in your truth. I've not sat with idolatrous mortals, nor will I go in with hypocrites. I've hated the assembly of the evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. There's a man who's confident in his God. There's a man who presses on, rules well, ministers well the mercies of Christ, preaches boldly, preaches faithfully, regardless of what the people want or not, though they should be wanting to hear Christ crucified. Press on, men. Only be men of integrity. Congregation, press on, upholding the men, being yourselves, those who respond to the word of truth, genuinely, faithfully, holy in 2024. And so, press on and finish well. Christianity is a marathon of sorts, even though you might not live as long as others. In every case, it's a long race, not a sprint, but a long race. Finish well. Run well. Glorify God always with a genuineness that shows God is in the midst. And he is. Thank God for men of integrity and the God of our salvation who will have it so. Amen. Lord, we pray that you will bless us with a word that we might be people of integrity, wholeness, real, not fake, powerful, not emasculated, weakened by our inconsistencies, our temptations, our compromises. Lord, this is a humble, sobering word, but you are God. And you would remind us of what church is all about. This is your serious business, the business of rescuing souls and keeping souls, loving us, miserable sinners. God of mercy, bless these men, bless us all, and help us to celebrate as we go into another year that we are truly graced of God. And we have this message. May we 
preach it, live it, and be those who hope in heaven because of that wonderful news that it is, the good news of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.